1: Welcome back, everyone. Thank you guys so much for joining us, whatever platform you're listening to us on, wherever in the world you're listening to us. I know I say it every single episode, but I cannot thank you guys enough for the support and for sharing this podcast to others. It's really been a treat to kind of watch it grow and and take off, uh, especially these last couple months or so. It's been great. So thank you guys so much. And I was just mentioning this off air to to my guests that I'm probably going to learn as much as you guys are, because this is... Something that we're discussing that I don't have a lot of experience, at least in the practical sense. So I know I'm going to learn a lot and uh, hopefully you guys listening too will learn as well. Uh, we're going to talk about the 1-2-2 uh, defense today. So for those of you who are defensive-minded like me, this should be great. And even if you don't run a 1-2-2, this might get you thinking a little bit about it or maybe give you some ideas of refining it or implementing it or just seeking out more resources about it. But I think my guest today is going to be a great resource uh, of knowledge about it, who actually requested that he wanted to talk about it. So I'm really excited to hear him talk about it. I'm joined today by Coach John Cruz. Coach, how are you today? I'm doing well thanks for having me on I appreciate it thank you like I said this is something that i'm I'm looking forward to learning about myself and looking to hear and looking forward to hearing your knowledge about it so this should be great so coach let's go ahead and get started where's the game of basketball taking you where's your coaching journey taking you and where are you currently at right now well I
0: um born and raised in Missouri so i've spent my my whole life in Missouri mid-Missouri mostly and um, you know grew up playing the sport being around just sports in general so uh when i went through college um, i i knew i wanted to do something with sports uh, since it's been you know a big part of my life and my family's life um and and, and figured that education would would help me do that as as best as i could so um, decided to be a, a history teacher, and that, that started my coaching journey. Um, spent the, the first eight years of, of my career in, in mid-Missouri at some small schools um, that were all about 200 students, nine through 12th grade, um, and then the last two years, I've, I've recently just moved to Northwest Missouri, where I have little to no ties at all, actually, and, and my wife and I just decided to, to get a change of scenery. We moved to the Northwest and I'm now coaching at a, at a school about the same size as I have been my whole career called West Platte. Um, it's in Weston, Missouri. We're right on the Missouri-Kansas border. So uh, great school. Uh, definitely love, love the transition that my wife and I have both made. So very happy with where we're at and um, taking over the West Platte program. So uh, it's been, been about 10 years total for me coaching here.
1: So as somebody who's been at one school for a pretty decent amount of time, I just wanted to ask, what have you noticed change in the past 10 years? Have there been things that you've noticed that have been different? Are there things that have stayed the same? What What are some trends or maybe things that have stayed constant throughout that time? Yeah, that's a
0: good question. You know, probably the biggest the biggest difference um, that I've noticed in, in – just the last decade of coaching is just the, the, uh, the advent of the three-point line, you know, just people sure. using that more as, as an advantage, even, even in, you know, that the level that I coach at is pretty much middle of the road in Missouri, a little smaller end um, of, of the schools and, in, in the state. So, but, e- but even at our level, we see lots of teams just shooting way more threes than, uh, than I did definitely 10 years ago. And, definitely when I played too. So, you know, it's not uncommon for us to, uh, I mean, my team shoots a bunch of threes, so we'll, we'll shoot 30 or so a game, but um, there's also, you know, the teams that we play against also shoot about that same number. So um, for the most part anyway, but that, that's probably the biggest difference I've seen is just the, the focus on using the three point line as a weapon and utilizing different and creative ways to, to get open looks from three and, and to, to use that as a weapon.
1: And then one more follow-up to that, because I know I have my own experience with the three-point shot and girls coming in who shoot or try to shoot the three-point shot. Do do you find yourself having to do a lot of correction with like form and mechanics? Because at least for me in my experience, what I see, it looks like it's all over the place in terms of form, especially from the three-point line. Do you see that as well?
0: Yes, for sure. (laughs) Um, We, we, you know, the school I'm at right now, um, I'm lucky enough to be both, the, the seven, seventh and eighth grade coach and the high school coach and our seasons overlap you know for a little while there and keeps me busy but one of the reasons why I was interested in that is exactly what what you just said is uh, my first year in the district you know we, we we have a we still do struggle with putting the ball in the hole and mm-hmm. a very inconsistent shooting form and things of like that like that so I thought the younger, the younger I can get involved with, you know, the age groups here, the, the better that could be. And, and we spend a ton of time shooting and a ton of time correcting form and, and smoothing those things out as we go. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely would agree with you on that. And um, I'm not sure why that is, but um, it's definitely something that needs to be a focus at the lower levels. I think that's probably across the country, not just, you know, in Arizona or Missouri, but yeah, um,
1: absolutely. You know, it's,
0: it's definitely something that seems to get overlooked at the younger ages, at least um, at different age groups. So um, yeah, that's a huge focal point for us for sure.
1: And a big thank you to all those who do coach and teach basketball at the youth level and the middle school level. There's so much that those coaches do that when it's done well and properly, it's just such a huge difference once they get to high school and and, and beyond. So huge thanks to, to all those teaching and coaching basketball at that level for sure. Now, Coach, one of the things I noticed when I was looking at your Twitter a couple of days ago is that you have a tweet that as of the time of this recording is pinned and it's about small-sided games. And I think that there is, there seems to be more of a, a push towards that. And, and I think that that's a good thing about using small-sided games. So I wanted to ask you, what is the importance of small-sided games for you? And, and, and why do you personally like uh, having them and running with them?
0: Yeah, that's that's a good question. You know, the small sided games movement in in coaching is still relatively young. Um, Mm -hmm. I think there's there's still a lot of people at at all levels, from you know youth all the way through college, that don't utilize it probably the way they should. Um, And a, a big reason for that, I think, is just because basketball. A lot of people coach it the way they were coached, or they coach it the way they played it, and so that there, there tends to be lots of recycling of old information, you know, um, using the same drills that you used on your high school team or your college team with the team that you currently coach. And, and I definitely fell into that category when I first started teaching because, you know, you only do the best you know how to do. And if you don't know any better, then you fall back on what you learned. So um, I know that when I first started coaching, um, every time my team would, would go through a rough patch, I would think, man, I, you know, I got to get a new drill in here. I, you know, we didn't rebound well last night. So let's find some rebounding drills, you know, and you'd go see like a Tom Izzo rebounding drill. And it didn't take me long to, to figure out that like pretty much everybody's doing the same thing. And so mm-hmm. I, I, you know, that the question I kept asking is like, there, there's, there has to be a better way out there. I just have to find it, you know, where do I need to look? And that led me, you know, on a, a deep dive through different resources on the internet and reaching out to different coaches all across the country. And eventually I ran across Chris Oliver and basketball immersion and those things. And that led me down the rabbit hole of small-sided games and, and looking at the science of, of how, how people can acquire skills faster, um, European models of skill development for the youth youth ages. And just things like that led me to to really see that there's so much more to basketball than what my experiences were as a player and as a young coach and that I just needed to do things better. Um, so the real benefit that I see from them, um, is two things really. Number one is it makes practice more fun. You know, when, when you're playing a, a game that simulates a skill that the players are going to use, um, they, you as the coach, you're probably locked in on the execution of the skill, um, and adding adding restraints or taking one away maybe to make things difficult or or easier depending on the situation. Um, but they're getting a ton better, and they think they're playing a game, and that's really what it's all about. When when they're having fun, the engagement level goes way up, the learning goes way up, and their skill acquisition is much much faster. And so those are those are the two reasons why I just I love them is the amount of fun that the players have doing it that way, and also how much quicker your team seems to get better um, through the process of using small-sided games and whatever your philosophy is.
1: And I think in my experience, definitely running different forms of small-sided games, I think it definitely can get chaotic, but I think that's also in a good way. I I sometimes think that when when I do drills, they're almost like too clean. They're almost like too perfect. And it doesn't necessarily represent all the time what an actual basketball game is. I don't know if you've had that experience yourself, but I know that's just kind of something I've noticed uh, when I do drills versus like maybe more small sided games and competitive type things.
0: Yeah. And I, I totally agree. And I think as coaches, you know, we like that, that feeling that it gives us that we're in control. You know, this looks clean, this looks crisp, this must be going well. And, and what you learn is like, basketball is, I mean, we all know it, but I think we don't translate it to our practices all the time is basketball is really not clean and not pretty all the time. Most of the time it isn't. And so the more opportunities we can put our players in situations where they have to struggle to find the solution, um, the better it's going to be. And it took a while for me to learn that. And definitely when you start shifting from like the block practice to the small sided games approach, it takes quite a bit of of a letting go from the coaching perspective. Like you have to be willing to let it get ugly um, and you can't be afraid to step in and stop a drill and correct things and walk out of a practice going, man, that was absolutely hideous. And I have no idea if we got any better. Sometimes you have days like that, but then as, as you stick with it and you'll start to see the progression. And when the light bulb finally clicks for your players uh, because they survive some tough situations and their skills are getting better. Uh, it's pretty fun. And and they start to see progress, then you start to see progress, and then that's when things really start rolling in the right direction. Uh, but it, that takes a lot of that takes a lot of faith from the from the coach. You know, yeah, you have to you have to be exactly. willing to let things get ugly.
1: Yeah, and and just like you said, you kind of have to stick with it. You going to have this like stick to itiveness with it that you believe that, okay, it's gonna look ugly, it's not gonna be maybe the cleanest looking thing. I might, I might not film this and put this on YouTube or my athletic director might look at me like, whoa, what is going on? But if you believe in it and you know the benefit of it and you stick with it over time, like you said, I definitely for sure think there's there's benefit in, in that ugliness and there's a lot of hidden gems and teachable moments within there. So uh, yeah, I, I'm glad that we had that little discussion there because I think that just, just having those small-sided games and just anything to kind of get away from just repetition and and things that don't necessarily translate on the court i I think is always a benefit to at least consider so great all right coach uh one two two as i mentioned beginning it's not something i see a lot um maybe it's just the competition i play but i don't see it a lot personally um so i'm gonna be i'm just really curious to start with just from a philosophy standpoint why do you like the one two two over other defensive forms? like what benefits have you seen over your time implementing it?
0: Well, um, it, it was actually it's, my philosophy has has really evolved over the years into liking the one two two and I have to give a lot of credit to some other coaches that are around me here in Missouri that that really are you know spectacular at teaching it and have had a ton of success but at my previous school, um, in mid-Missouri, there was a, 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 there's a program there called Boonville, Missouri, and um, their, their girls coach, his name's Jarrett Hunziker, um, who's just the master of, of the one two two 2 ball press, is what he calls it, um, and they are just relentless three-quarter court, for the most part, 1-2-2 two, two pressure, um, and, you know, my teams would run against his teams every now and then in different tournaments and things throughout the year, and, um, it just, after a couple times of playing them, you know, I really just started to watch them play more any chance I got. And uh, I just started to really dig in and be like, man, you know, what they do in a zone is what we try to do in man-to-man. And that, that was my original philosophy was just, you know, man-to-man defense, pressure the ball. Um, you know, we, we were, we were definitely a pressure man-to-man forced to a checkpoint and those types of things. Um, so the more I watched them play, the more I was like, you know, I think this is something that would be easier to teach, um, allows you to play a few more girls, um, and lets you play a little faster than what we were doing, and so, um, you know, I I started talking to Coach Hunziker a little bit, and we bounced ideas back, and he pretty much convinced me that, hey, you know, you you can do a lot of things with this, so ultimately, um, long story short, why, what sold me on it is, It's a super flexible defense. You can kind of tailor it to your group of girls or your group of players, um, regardless of size or speed. You can can play it different ways to make it fit your group. Um, And you can also tailor it to who you're playing. If they got good shooters, you can shadow them. Um, If they got a good post player, you can sag off a little bit more. There's lots of different things you can do. Um, And then the second reason why is just the simplicity of the defense was something that I just love that, you know, we don't have to spend tons and tons of time and practice going over, um, you know, rotating and help, help the helper, uh, you know, all those complex situations that can come with uh, playing man-to-man all the time that we were spending all this time on. Um, You know, zone's pretty simple. You've got two or three slides per position. Um, You know, there's specific ways people try to exploit it. Um, you put your girls in the situ- in those situations too where they're used to seeing different attacks. And and then you just really focus on, you know, playing hard and pressuring the ball and all the same things that every good man-to-man defense does. So the flexibility and simplicity was something that I just um, gravitated towards and it allowed us to still fit the defensive philosophy that I've always appreciated, which is, um, you know, just forcing as many turnovers as you can without being reckless um, and, You know, just being able to play a lot of kids, a lot of minutes, get the ball up and down the court quickly um, and and allowed us to check all those boxes. So once we started messing around with it, it just kind of stuck and and I've used it ever since. So um, that that's pretty much the the two reasons why I I decided to switch to it.
1: Now, let's talk about um, just from a implementation standpoint. You have the one-two-two. Two. You have you have the one. And in my experience, when whether it's one-two-two two or one-three-one or what, whatever sort of defense has that one in there, <laughs> whoever that one is going to be needs to be be on it. They need to be a certain type of player to really get uh, the most out of that defense, at least from what I've seen. But I'll, I'll certainly let you speak to it. So for for that player who's going to be the one in the one-two-two. Two, what do you need that player to, to do? What do you need that player to act like? What do you need for them to uh, be accomplishing in order for your defense to be successful?
0: Yeah, that, you know that, that's probably the most important part um, of your one, two, two is going to be that top one. Um, and so we identify the players as, as ones and then the twos are the guards behind them and then the threes are, are the post players behind the guards. And so we call that our one, like you referenced. And, you know, I've had different types of ones over the last few years. Um, and like this year, you know, I have a freshman point guard who's about five foot two, maybe 90 pounds. <laughs> and she plays that position um, way different than any girl I ever have. And so the, the key is no matter how you play it, that, that one has to be your tone setter. Um, they, they have to be somebody who can harass the ball. But they have to be smart enough to know, like, they can't do it all by themselves the whole, the whole game. So um, what, what we try to do now at the school I'm at is we, we three-quarter court press almost the entire game. And our one's job is to get the ball to a side and then force it down into our, where our twos are, our ball side two. And then they work together to trap the ball in different areas. Um, and so that's, that's what our current point guard, she's really, really good on the ball. Um, and, and teams have a hard time getting around her, and she's, she's small, and she's got great hands. Um, so sometimes, you know, when we play bigger teams, they can just look right over her head, and it's a little less effective. But that's, that's when you have, you know, as a coach, you can make an adjustment. You peel them back. Uh, maybe you don't pressure as much. But definitely the most important thing for that top girl is just a, a relentless motor, you know, and just understanding, like, when to pressure, when to force them to a side, um, keeping people in front of you, um, when you're in the the quarter court um, things like that are, are just invaluable they they have to have a little bit of a dog mentality you know they can't get tired um, and even if they are tired nobody knows it but them and maybe me you know but um, <laughs> that's that's kind of the key you just have to have a girl up there that can just go crazy you know and and will give you everything they got for uh, half a quarter if if you can get it that much out of them and then you can rotate different girls through there and Um, that's the key for us. We've got about three girls right now that can play that one spot and we rotate them fairly regularly um, just to keep them fresh and keep them moving. But um, I I would just say that that relentless attitude of pressuring the ball, no matter what's happening, um, is definitely a key for that one spot.
1: So as a follow-up to that, and this is Bit of a stereotype, but I coach girls, so I, I'm well aware of it. <laughs> and, I, and we've actually talked to other guests who've brought this up before that typically uh, girls compared to guys, though, I, I don't know what the percentages are, but typically girls tend to be more one-handed dominant when they, when they get the ball. Do you find that situation where your one is able to easily force like a weak hand and force the side that way or... Uh, have, you, have you not seen that so much what what's the situation like with the the ball handling that you've seen yeah i, I would definitely
0: agree with that i know my team's very one-sided i mean we we, we are right hand dominant for sure which i'm sure is the case for most teams um, but yeah we we see that a lot. Um, now, currently in the area that we play in, in Northwest Missouri, we have a lot of good guards around here. So those, those really good guards in our area can go both ways, and that can be a bit of a problem. But, um, you know, we, we talk about it, and, and we definitely let our one know, hey, you know, force her left or force her right, depending on the situation. Um, but one thing that uh, I haven't done much at this current school I'm at, but I did at my previous school, we didn't press as much. We just played pretty much a half court one, two, two, we would trap a little, but most of, most of it was just keep the ball in front of us, you know, contest every shot. And one thing we really worked on a lot at that school is when they came down and put it to one side, we just tried to keep it at that, on that side, whether it was left or right, we would try to deny reversals and different things. And that group I had at that school was really, really good at that. And so it's not so much their we can side, but just keep just taking away half of the court, I think is super valuable. Um, and something you can definitely do in a one, two, two, a little bit easier than maybe people realize. So, yeah, there, there's, there's a lot to that. I think you, you make a great point there.
1: And so, with, with the, the, ne- the next set, so the, the next set of, of, I guess, twos here in, in the one, two, two, so that actually it's that first set of twos. Um, you mentioned before about how they're the ones, uh, ideally, if possible, looking, looking to get a trap and, and looking to coordinate that with, with the one who's up top. Uh, are there any other real refining points or teaching moments that you want to make sure that uh, that first line of twos is aware of and paying attention to in order to do this correctly?
0: Yeah, you know, the, the one thing when, when if you're thinking about implementing this that that I've learned is if, if you're going to trap a lot out of it, then you really have to spend some time teaching your girls or your boys, whatever you know, program you're in charge of is the value of a good trap and how you do that. Um, you you know, we were really bad at the beginning of this year. We would get somebody forced to a side, they'd come to about that half court corner area, we would trap and then we'd reach in and try to steal the ball and foul, you know. <laughs> I think we've like, all been so there just, for
1: sure. Yep.
0: Oh yeah, you know, and and just little things like that um take a lot of time for them to understand. Um so with the twos, you know, they're they're very similar to the ones, really. Their effort level has to be pretty high consistently. And the ball side two has to be willing to step in front of a, a girl that's dribbling most of the time full speed, and has to be able to stick her chest in the way there and slow the ball down and not let them cross over into the middle, which is sometimes a, a tough task to ask. But then the backside two girl has to be has to understand where the middle is, and sometimes I think players struggle with understanding that the middle moves all the time, and it's and a lot of especially good teams they're not going to get the ball into the middle the same way every time for every possession in the game. Sometimes they flash somebody from the backside. Sometimes they uh, just cut somebody from the front of the zone into it. There's different ways that people do it. And the other thing is when somebody's in the middle, that doesn't mean they're just going to stand there next to you. They're going to move and the, and the two has to adapt. um, Whether that pulls them further away from the ball or closer to the basket or um, you know, not, just being disciplined enough to take away the middle but don't chase people and sometimes that just takes some experience and, and some you know game time for them to understand like hey this isn't the same thing every time and I have to be on my toes and be bouncing and and ready to to take away the middle but if the ball gets reversed I got to get to the other side of the court um, and cut cut the reversal attack off so for the twos, definitely just being super active and being able to run sideline to sideline. The more they can do that, uh, the better your defense is going to be. Which is, you know, whether you're playing man to man or or anything, if you've got girls that can go side to side, you're you're going to be in good shape. But um, that's definitely what we look for in in at that two spot is the ability to trap without fouling, the ability to take away the middle when you're on the weak side, and just the basic understanding of. How to cover your area um, without getting lost, especially when the ball gets reversed, and 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 keeping it out of the middle at all costs.
1: Now, one of the the big things that that drive coaches crazy, and you know, myself included, is, is those reach in fouls there on the trap when you've done all that work, and you know you reach in and, and foul, and ah, uh, it's drives a lot of coaches crazy for sure. So, in your experience running it if it's done well and there's not that reach and foul, what have you noticed in terms of turnovers? Is it bad passes that have been intercepted on the weak side? Has it been back court violations, just traveling calls? What have you seen as like the ideal like situation to get out of it and maybe also in practice, what have you also seen to your benefit in terms of turnovers that you get out of it?
0: Yeah. You know, that's, that's a good question. And um, I think any team that presses, um, they want to force live ball turnovers, right? So the ones that we can get ahead and score on and, and that's the main, that's another main reason why we decided to, to, to commit to this, at this, this program I'm at now is if if we're struggling to score, we want as many opportunities to put the ball in the basket as possible. <clears throat> and so this really helps us with that. You know, we went From last year, um, you know, excuse me, from forcing, you know, 15 to 20 turnovers, which isn't great, to this year, we're forcing over 30 a game. And so, um, you know, what what we see is is a lot of different types. Um, What we get a lot is, uh, you know, a team will bring it up one side of the court, we'll start to shift our zone to trap them, and they'll reverse it quickly to the other side. And that girl on the weak side will start speed dribbling up the side or two, or, or, you know, once weak side two that's sprinting to the strong side now. She'll cut it off, and our one will come and close the gate behind her, and that kind of surprises them, and they'll, you know, kind of stutter their feet and travel a little bit. We get that a lot. Um, the other thing, too, is in that same situation on a reversal, we might slow down the, the attack off the reversal, and they may try to skip it, and they throw it out of bounds. Um, so we get those two things a lot, just the simple travel violations when, you know, an unexpected trap might be coming from behind or the rushed, you know, pass over, over top of the teammate's head out of bounds, something like that. Um, when those two things aren't happening, though, what we get a lot of is uh, when, when the ball is in a trap, um, it, they may get us out, they may pass out of the trap one time but that second time on our rotation we get a lot of two pass steals. So they they reverse it out of a trap back towards the middle of the floor and they're trying to get it quickly to the other side and our backside uh two that ran from the middle to her new position there usually can shoot the gap and get that steal. Um so those those are the two that the the two things that we see a lot. So um I guess I don't know if that really answered your question. We see a, a mixture of all those types of turnovers, but we definitely think encourage the, the live ones.
1: I think the the big part of emphasis it it seems is that getting those those live ball turnovers, how much work is involved where once the trap is set, in a way that could just be like the beginning for for what you're you're trying to get out of the out of your your one, two, two, like the trap is done and and, and maybe in a perfect world, you're going to get something out of that, but it's going to still possibly require a lot of work from uh, the other two who's who's in the middle or protecting the, the other side, or possibly, as you mentioned, your one having to scramble and get all the way to the other side to go and set another trap. So it doesn't seem like you can just sort of rest once that initial trap has been put in place.
0: Oh, definitely not. And, and that's something, you know, we emphasize all the time is like, we want the game to be as chaotic as we can possibly get it. And so to do that, we can't have anybody, we talk about bouncing all the time. We're always on our toes bouncing. We should never be flat footed. Um, and, and that's a big reason why is we, we we attack all the time. And we want, even on reversals, we want a second trap if we can get it. Um, and, and, you know, we spend a lot of time selling that to the girls because really when you face a trapping defense, most of the time it's just the strong side trap. They get it on that one side. And if you can reverse it, then you've got something good. Well, we really try to emphasize, you know, pe- teams are going to reverse it, but hopefully we're quick enough that when they reverse it, they can, they're reversing it into another trap and that can surprise them. And that's kind of our goal there. Um, but definitely the more active you are, the better. and we uh we 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 sell this to the girls too that you know the first quarter we may not get a ton of turnovers even the second quarter if you know we may not get that many more but but we can definitely start to see by the end of the third beginning of the fourth teams are starting to just maybe not get tired but get tired of us you know they're tired of dealing with it they're tired of getting trapped tired of the same girl in their face and uh getting trapped and getting a deflection on their passes and just things being contested all the time, that eventually we always seem to hit a little spurt where we'll get two or three ske- steals for two or three buckets late, uh, just things like that. It's kind of like, you know, a war of attrition. You just kind of wear them down and eventually you hope that by the end of the game, you've cracked it a little bit, that you've, you've made a nice little run that can, that can give you a lead.
1: So with how active you expect your team to, to be, how, how deep are you going in, into your bench? How quickly are you subbing people in and out to keep your uh, defense as fresh as possible on the court?
0: Yeah, we, we, we have, we dressed 14 girls on varsity this year. Now, we, we don't play all 14. Um, we, we have a consistent nine that we play quite a bit. Um, and so we'll go, we'll go 11 deep, you know, if we get in some foul trouble and different things. Um, we've got a good group of young girls that we trust and, and that, that work really hard. So, um, you know, that's another selling point for the one, two, two is just, you know, if you play it and you're pressuring, you know, and and trapping the way that we play it, which, you know, everybody's got to decide that on their own, that it's a great selling point for your girls because they know they're going to play, um, the way, the way that we play and how hard we play, we need as many girls as we can. So, you know, most nights we go 9 to 11 deep, um, and we're, we're fortunate this year um, that we've really got, you know, those 11 girls are all pretty much the same skill level, and they're all very similar. So that definitely makes life easier, uh, but that won't always be the case. So, you know, ideally I'm thinking – you're probably going to need eight or nine girls that, that you really can trust and that you can throw out there and really harass people to, to make it through a 32-minute game like we have here in Missouri.
1: Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right about about the selling point that not only are, are, are other people going to play, but they absolutely are needed to play and to do their job as well because you want to keep that defense as, as fresh as possible. But of course, you always want your, your players to be in the best shape as possible too, but in a perfect world, like you said, you're harassing that other team, getting them tired, getting them annoyed, and and making that spurt like you mentioned. Now, with the with the back two, I um, always find it really interesting what people do, whether it's a full quarter, three quarter court situation with that back line. So, you, since you got two players there in the back. Um, are they serving um, just, just with rim protection? Are they looking for double team opportunities with the two in front? Or are they looking to trap as well? Um, take us through what that looks like and does it change depending on the, the size of the player and the type of player that's back there?
0: Yeah, you know, that I think um, when we were talking about the one, I mentioned that that might be your most important part. But, you know, the longer I do it, the more I'm starting to realize the better your threes are on the back. Um, the the better your press is going to be overall. Um, So our general rules for our threes is, you know, when the ball's like, let's say it's coming up the court on the left side, then our left side three is taking away the sideline and our weak side three would be on the midline of the court, um, kind of as, you know, acting as that basket protector. So they're both kind of on a string, you know, when one goes to the sideline, the other is in the middle. um, And if the ball gets reversed then they just, would switch those spots so you go from the middle to the sideline and sideline to the middle and we always tell them you know the number one rule for the threes is nobody can get behind you and so if they run somebody deep you know the the girl one of our threes has to take them and so we've actually done some different things this year where depending on personnel who's who's back there what we have some threes that move better than others so we'll almost put stack those two threes and we'll have one high one low you know one about the the um, top of the three-point line on our end, and we'll do like a, a diamond and one almost. Um, so we'll do things like that, and it's, it's definitely personnel-driven, um, but for the most part, we want them to be as active as the twos, you know, and um, our general rule, again, I you know, I stole all these things from Coach Hunziker and, at Boonville, but if they dribble across half-court, we want our one and two to trap. If they pass it over half-court, then we want our three to slow it down and our two to run from the backside and trap. So the ball sides two and three would trap a pass over half court. So definitely the more athletic you can be on that back end, the more successful you'll be um, if you're pressuring. So that, that's what we try to do. We always try to make sure we have um, some speed on that backside as best we can. Um, and also we, we really put a lot of thought into to rebounding down there, like which, which two of our girls can also can move but also are decent rebounders. Um, and, you know, that's easy for me to sit here and say because we aren't very big at, at West Platte, So most of my girls do move very, very well, and they run sideline to sideline. They're pretty quick. So we can mix and match a lot of different girls in a lot of different positions there, which can give teams some problems at times.
1: Well, I, I feel like those in the back line, the, the threes that you mentioned, the the ones in the back and the one, two, two, one, one of the real important roles that they kind of serve is they can kind of see everything in front of them do you require like any particular level of communication from, from those in the, the back line, those threes, like you mentioned, because they're able to see uh, the whole court or uh, what does that sort of look like?
0: Yeah, definitely. We, we call, uh, we, we tell our threes all the time that, you know, they, they have to be our quarterbacks, you know. They're the ones like pre-snap reads before the ball's being thrown in. Um, you know, off a dead ball or, or anything like that that they're they're back at about half courts where we start them a little bit uh, further back. and they're they're talking about where's the middle girl coming from. Um, if they see a girl flashing into the middle, they're talking to the twos, you know, step up, step back, step in. Um, and we work at, we work on all those things because they are the ones that that really do see everything. So the more vocal they are, the better it is for everyone. So we definitely emphasize those things.
1: And in the situations where, let's just say it comes down to the, to the rim protector and it's, you know, a one-on-one situation and somebody in your back line has to protect the rim, in those experiences, have, have you found that you're still able to, you know, have success and, and still force a bad shot? D- does it get a little tricky back there? I'm, j- I'm just curious when it gets down to that very last line of defense – when it's just almost that one-on-one situation with one player protecting the rim, uh what has your experience been when it gets to that point?
0: Yeah, we um we definitely work on that quite a bit and we and we tell our girl if if they're in that situation that their their number one job is to protect the rim. Don't come running out of the lane towards the three-point line and just give up an easy layup by that girl just blowing right past us. So we, we talk about, um, we call it bluff and peel. So we'll like act like we're coming out, but we'll stay in on the lane and we'll kind of just, um, you know, jab in and out at the ball. But the one thing that really helps us is usually those situations happen because the ball gets passed over our heads. And so we may have a trap, you know, around half court or before half court. And if, and if we see a ball, our rule is if the ball goes over our head, you are immediately sprinting back to the lane. And we d- we definitely put a huge emphasis on our backside two. So if it's on the left side and our one and two are approaching a trap, and maybe their point guard throws it over our one and two um, up the sideline to a girl on their team, and now it's just ball side threes, or maybe you know our ball side three tried to steal it and missed it, so now it's their girl heading towards our rim with the backside three standing in the lane. Well, when all that's taking place, as soon as that point guard throws that ball up the sideline, our backside two better be sprinting all the way down to that backside block on the other, you know, on the other end of the floor. Yeah, and and we sell it to them as you know that that's your regular zone slide anyway. When the ball's away from us, you have to drop on the backside, so you better get there as soon as possible because you're already late to the party. And so we <laughs> emphasize that a lot, and we get a ton of. Um, Those situations where not a ton, but it happens regularly where a girl will be driving in towards our backside three and they'll try to dump it down to a girl on their team on the weak side and our backside two flies in and knocks it out of bounds, you know, and and to us, you know, I know like that's probably most coaches would look at that and be like, oh man, you know, we're living dangerously, but we love that because we're trying to get the game that fast. And anytime we can disrupt, you know, with, with a, a deflection or a tip out of bounds. I mean, we, we love that stuff. Our girls love it, they go crazy. Um, and, and that's that's kind of what we want, you know. So we feel like that's that's playing into how we want the game to go.
1: And I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I I think you may have alluded to this earlier. And and this is kind of the situation I know that I personally have faced. I know other coaches have faced as well, where we talked a couple times about the idea of things like being chaotic and things being kind of messy. I know for a lot of the teams that I've worked with or coached, one of the reasons why I do that personally is because if we just got into a game where it was half court against half court, I know I would be putting my team at a disadvantage. Is that is that something that you might have alluded to earlier? Is that something that you kind of feel where you don't necessarily want to be getting into a half court versus half court game, and, and you're perfectly happy and want things to be messy and chaotic
0: oh definitely yeah that's we want things to be as 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 crazy and hectic as we can possibly get them um and you know not that we're afraid of a half-court game but that's definitely not our strength so right um anytime we can get the game up and down and and that's you know that that's how that's my offensive philosophy anyway where we spend a, a great deal of time on offense and transition and and playing with advantages and different things like that. So, um, you know, anytime we can get we can get the game fast faster paced, we're we're going to do it. And we definitely want we want that that chaotic uh, nature definitely going up and down the court.
1: So let's kind of circle back almost to when uh, we talked about uh, small side of games, talked about practice situations and things uh, a little bit earlier. So when it comes to refining and implementing and checking to make sure that your one, uh, that, that your one, two, two is going where you need it to, what are you emphasizing and going over in practice? What skills or, or different things are you doing to kind of refine, teach, and just keep improving, uh, your one, two, two in a practice situation?
0: Yeah, we talk about, um, two things pretty regularly every day. Um, number one is, is, you know, pressure is one thing, but, but we want disruption. Um, and, and that uh, to me, they're, they go hand in hand, but they're two different things. And so we talk about that a lot. And the second thing we talk about is, is just being engaged. Um, like all, always locked in, you know, is this the correct slide? Am I communicating with my teammates? Am I, uh, are my hands high in a trap? And, you know, am I not reaching in? You know, those mm. types of things. Yep. But we spend a great deal of time on, uh, you know, understanding that disruption doesn't have to be super difficult. Like you don't have to do anything fancy to, to get teams out of their rhythm. But, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, this is, uh, you know, this team, they like to go to, to the right side of the floor. And this guard really likes to take two dribbles right, crossover left. And then, you know, we'll just throw it out to the girls. So how, how can we disrupt that? And, and so we're constantly working on, you know, what is it that they want, want to do and then more importantly, what are we doing to make them uncomfortable and make and take some things away? Um, and what's interesting is this year, we we just fully 100% dedicated ourselves to the 122 um, at this new school, the pre- previous school I was at, we did it all the time and no other defense. And um, so when I got up here, I, I thought I had a great group that would be good for pressure man, and we did it and we were okay. But Um, We started doing the one, two, two late last year and the girls just loved it. So we just fully committed to it this year. Um, So the more we've done it, the more they've really bought into that and the better they've got at understanding just, you know, if I can just get my fingertips on a ball, that's disruptive. Um, if, If I can just stop a girl dribbling, you know, a girl's going up the right side and if I can just make her stop and do a pullback dribble, I just disrupted their whole flow. And so we're constantly looking at little opportunities and practice to praise when somebody's been disruptive, you know, just turning a dribbler, just little things like that. So um, we actually chart that too. You know, coaches chart deflections all the time and we do too, but we call them disruptions. So anytime we, we feel like we we made the offense do something they weren't planning on doing, um, we chart that and we keep a little leaderboard of it. Um, and the girls really get into that and they've really um, bought into you know, that idea of just being as active and disruptive as possible, <clears throat> especially on the ball and off the ball, too. There's some things we do there, but that's the first thing and probably and, most important.
1: And and that idea of of just being just super active and, and, and just being quick on your feet and, and being able to, to get into the correct position, is that something that you, you really had, had to work on and almost establish as, like, a culture-type thing, or did you just have to like give the direction and then the the girls were on it? Um, I'm always curious because sometimes I feel like it, it should maybe come naturally. The players are always like active and moving on their feet, but I know that always isn't the case. So I'm, I'm curious what that, what that's been like uh, with this program that you're in.
0: Um, yeah. And you know, that's, that's a good question. I think coaches are always kind of looking for that answer. You know like, what, like what, you know, how can I ramp up my team's, um, intensity and how can I get them to play harder, you know, and that's always a thing. But, um, you know, I think just the first thing you have to do is sell them on just how hard it is they really have to play. Um, and I know what benefited us early in the year is we implemented it and we got down the basics, you know, they knew balls here, I'm on the ball, or I'm I'm protecting the middle, or I'm, I've got the bat. Like they picked that up pretty quick, you know. But one thing that we really did is we spent – um, like I mentioned, you know, Coach Hunziker in mid-Missouri a couple times, and he was uh, gracious enough to, to send us some film so we could watch their team play. They're a much bigger school. Um, and so just to see the different – you know, we, we spent a lot of time just watching another team do it that has had success with it. And, and so they spent a lot of time, especially early in the year, watching, well, this is how – you know, do you notice how they – constantly are in the face of the offense the offense can't settle all the offense is doing is trying to survive that's what we're trying to do and you could just see us gradually starting to understand you know like okay I you know that right there they reversed it and I kind of backed away and I need to go attack the ball Um, so it's it's to answer your question it's kind of like the small-sided games conversation we had earlier is um, you have to just stay on it and you have to set the bar high and you have to have the standard that, you know, we're, we're, we're going to play this one way and we're going to do it every single day in practice and games. And we're not going to waver from it. Um, and that's another benefit of playing a lot of girls is if somebody is wavering from it, you've got another one that won't. And so you throw, you throw them in there and then you, you let them know like, Hey, you know how you were doing this and why you came out is because, you know, your, your level of intensity isn't where we need it to be. So we're going to give you another shot here in about two minutes, be ready to go. And then most of the time that gets the message delivered, you know? Um, So it's just a consistent consistency thing, you know, demand it and, and just stick with it. And eventually it just becomes part of, of who you are. You mentioned the cultural part of it. And that's definitely a big, a big thing, you know? Girls girls, and guys are the same way. They like to press. You know, everybody likes to press and they like to play this way because it's fun. You know, you get to run at people. You get to play hard all the time and it's kind of fast and, you know, crazy and um, they like to do it. So it, it usually comes pretty naturally once you start um, emphasizing it and letting them know just how hard they have to do it.
1: And if it's one of those non-negotiable things, it's part of your program and part of your culture, then it sounds like they're going to get to it pretty quickly. And, you know, as, as some coaches would say, well, they, they figure it out if they want to play and they want to get on the court. Uh, so that, that's one way for, to get them bought in for sure. Um, so you, you, you've been running this and you have been sticking with this one-two-two, two, which means you've seen the ways that other teams are going to try and attack it and, and try and break it down so, for coaches who might be thinking about implementing this one, two, two, what should they be aware of that other teams are going to try and do to try and get what they want on the offensive end?
0: Yeah, there, you know, there's we've seen a lot of different things um, that, uh, you know, different teams try to do to us. You know, mo- most teams, I would say the stereotypical approach is, you know, the, the odd front zone, even front offense thing that pretty much everybody does. So we see a lot of, you know, 2-1-2 formations and, um, you know, teams trying to attack from the corner and things like that. Uh, but we also see some odd fronts where teams will match up with us and they'll, they'll have a girl in the short corner and a girl in the high post. And they'll treat it kind of like it's a 2-3 zone, you know. So they'll hit the short corner, they'll dive the post, and they try to either hit that post diving to the front of the rim or, or they will skip it backside for the three um, things like that. Um, but I, you know, what I think gives us the most problems um, is teams that really can spread us out. And what I mean by that is if they go like that two, one, two, but they don't put their girls in the corner and they stick them in between our twos and threes
1: mm, yeah. uh,
0: where, where our girls have to think like, okay, that girl has the ball and I'm the two on that side. Do I get her? Or is the three coming out to get her? And so just, just little things like that that, makes, that make our girls hesitate can give us some problems. Um, and then obviously, if you have, like, this is maybe counterproductive when you think about a zone, you think about, you know, if you've got shooters, you're in trouble. Actually, what kills us is if they have a girl in the middle that can pass, um, we, have, we, we have some difficulties with that. And um, they don't even have to be a great scorer, but just somebody who can get their hands on the ball and they know to turn and look opposite. Um, Or they can, you know, take one dribble and collapse everybody and then find their open teammate. Um, Things like that give us lots and lots of problems. And we've even seen um, some teams that play with two posts, which I think is pretty interesting. So they'll have a two guard front and they'll put two girls um, on the elbows and then have like a baseline runner. And they'll hit the baseline runner and the, and the ball side elbow will, will drop down to the short corner and the weak side elbow will kind of flash into the open gap on the ball side around the elbow area. Yeah. Um, so we see some, we see some really creative things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's really no different than any zone. Um, any type of, uh, inside out always is tough for us. Like it is for any zone. Um, so that's probably the big thing. Anything that that attacks inside out will give us problems for sure.
1: Yeah, I I've noticed that when I've been running different sorts of presses and things like that. The other thing too that I will will always be a bit disruptive for a, a press is when you have a, a good ball handler, or a patient ball handler, somebody who who's not rushed or doesn't get panicked by what other team is doing. Uh, I know I, I've seen that before and and. In a perfect world, I'm sure you could just, just get everybody panicked and everybody kind of rushed. But sometimes you play against those really good players who, who aren't going to be panicked and they're just going to make the smart play and things sort of happen like that.
0: Def, definitely. We, we run into that pretty regularly. You know, we that this area of Missouri, um, there are some some really good teams. And, and we actually, we are not a very big school, but, um, you know, we're about 15 minutes from Kansas City. So we, we, we play some bigger schools. And so... We'll, we'll run, we'll run up against guards who just, you know, our little five foot two one and our five foot two, two doesn't really bother them at all. And so then, then we have to make the adjustment that, you know, Hey, our traps aren't going to bother them now, but what we're going to have to do is contain, you know, and so you kind of have to switch your mindset of, you know, it's still pressure, but it's a different kind of pressure. And, and we're playing like the long-term game at that standpoint, you know, just make them handle the ball, stay between them and the basket, um, get hands on passes, frustrate them when they have it, things like that, but don't give them anything easy. Don't foul them, you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a, a good point is that's when the adjustments come in and you got you just have to coach your girls to understand that, Hey, we're not going to be able to trap and take the ball from everybody. That's just, it's an unrealistic expectation. So you know we just have to be able to adapt to what the game's giving us you know and and if yeah. our traps aren't producing turnovers then let, let's let's just contain it and let's let's make them at least work for 30 seconds to get a score which i don't know about your experience but in my experience in boys or girls basketball the longer the offense has the ball the worse that is for them usually um, they'll they'll take a bad shot you'll get a turnover something so when we talk about that all the time just the longer they possess it, typically, the worse their shot they're going to get, um, you know, generally uh, yeah, speaking. Yeah,
1: I've, no, I've noticed that, too. Um, and, and as long as uh, we can secure the rebound, that's great. <laughs> as long as we get oh, the rebound and, <laughs> and, and being able to get what we need to do and not giving up five five different possessions on that, then, yeah, we're, we're going to be in business. And it's okay if they hold on to the ball for a little bit. So a lot of teams, when they are, are pretty disciplined and they are, are really used to seeing a lot of pressure is they focus more on breaking the press, not necessarily trying to score right away on it. So what can your one, two, two, what can it kind of fall back into or what can it kind of go into in, in a half court setting if a team breaks it, but they're not um, looking to just score right away. Do you, do you go into a one, two, two in the half court? What does that sort of look like?
0: Yeah, we, we do. And um we just fall right back into a one, two, two again in the half court. And, and really it's no different than when we're in the, in the, in the full court or the three quarter court is, um, you know, when the ball's on one side, if it's on that two side, she has the ball. If it goes to the corner, the three comes out and takes it, um, you know, backside two will drop. It's, it's basic zone principles, you know, um, <clears throat> when the ball's on the wing, a two will take it and the one will take away the high post backside two will start to drop. Uh, if it goes all the way down the corner, the three comes out, comes off the block, and she'll go take the, she'll take the corner, and then the backside two will drop to the opposite block, and our backside three will front anything in the post. Um, so, you know, I think that's a pretty standard way that most people do it. But we'll do a lot of different things in the half court depending on the team that we're playing. Um, sometimes we'll trap, so we'll just do like a half court trap. So we're trapping literally everywhere on the court. Um, we don't do that a ton, but there are times when we need to, um, we like to do that to, to end a quarter or or start a quarter, or obviously if we're down, we'll do things like that. Um, we like to just trap in the corners. So if they're in that two, one, two set and they're really working out of, out of the corner, we'll, we'll run our two and our three together and trap them there. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we just fall back into a one, two, two, um, We'll do different things also where maybe the threes don't rotate out to the corner, but we'll just take our top three girls and we'll, we'll tilt them when the ball goes to one side. Um, so if they throw it down to the corner, our, our, our ball side two will take the corner. And then our, our one will take the next pass out of the corner. And then our back side two will be dropped in the middle of the lane and she's got any skip pass out. Um, And those aren't things that we just, you know, religiously live by that we do every time. But those are just wrinkles that we throw in to give people different looks if they're having success with different things they're doing on offense. Just again, that's the disruptive principle in our defense that we try to to throw in in, and different looks during the game.
1: And in your experience with the level of competition that you've played, once it gets into the half court situation, do you come across teams that, try to shoot their way out of that zone are you going up against you know teams that are just lightening up from the outside or are are you able to kind of lock things in and and be able to use your double teams and communication to sort of take take that away or maybe they're just not that good of shooters I don't know I'll let you speak about it
0: yeah you know again it depends on on who we play you know we defensively this year um we've been pretty solid and Um, our level of competition is pretty good for our area you know we're allowing about 37 points a game um, in a 32 minute game in Missouri Um, so you know that that's really good points wise um, like points allowed wise but um, you know we do see some teams that shoot a lot of threes um, against us but and that's mainly because you know when we're pressing in the three-quarter court and we're pretty much always in a scramble mode. So there's times where things get away from us, but uh, you know, our our ultimate goal is, is pressure the ball, disrupt the ball, let them shoot it quick. Let's rebound it and run. Um, And so we like, you know, even if they're making a couple shots early, obviously you don't like when the ball goes in the hole, but you know, (laughs) if it's, if it's kind if it's kind of getting the pace of the game where you want it to be, we're okay with that as long as, you know, it's not consistently happening. Um, and so, yeah, we get, we get a lot of threes um, shot against us, but, you know, we, we work a lot about contesting those and, and taking those away from people, and we've gotten better at that as the season's gone on for sure. Um, we actually have a team in our conference that has a Division One post player who's just a sophomore, Um, so you know that's a a totally different animal there and (laughs) yeah um, when you got that girl running down the middle of the floor obviously your attention's more there than it is um, on the perimeter but um, yeah so we we see a lot of different things uh, of different people to attack but really it comes back to that disruption principle that we've been talking about is we just don't ever want the offense to settle you know we don't ever want them to break the press back okay okay now we can um, get in this offense and like we just constantly want them to be putting the ball on the floor and not being able to survey what's going on and we've struggled at that you know that's hard to do and we've struggled with that at times and you know we'll, we'll get better as at it the more we do it but that's that's the ultimate goal just disrupt everything that they're doing don't let them stand and survey don't let them get set up don't let them you know dribble the ball up top for 12 seconds while their best shooter's <laughs> running off you know <laughs> staggered screens all over the place and you know, just things like that.
1: And, and as we talked about a few different times, just to kind of put a bow on that is it is going to look messy. It is going to look chaotic. You may give up some looks, you may give up some, some scores, but it's really like the stick-to-itiveness and the belief in it and just, just keep working at it. And as you mentioned, the belief that there might be some things you give up in the beginning and it may get a little chaotic, but will probably hopefully in in an ideal world become like good chaos. And then you get the deflections, you get the turnovers, you get the steals and really start to see the benefits out of it, but you have to stick with it is what it sounds like is is the big message there. You got, you got to believe in it. You got to stick with it and can't just abandon ship if things look ugly in the first, you know, couple possessions necessarily.
0: Yeah, definitely. And you know, this is something that all coaches have to, just decide, you know, you you, you There's trade offs to everything you do. You know, you can't pressure all over the floor and never expect to give up a layup, and you can't run and trap everywhere and and uh, disrupt. Try to be disruptive on, you know, for 75 of, of the 84 feet on a high school court, and then get get mad when a, a three goes through the net. Well, I mean, you, you're you're going to give up something. You just have to determine, you know, can you live with whatever it is you're consistently giving up. And if you can't, then, you know, that's when you make those adjustments. Um, but if you can, then you just sell your girls on it and you just get to work and, let, and you go. And, you know, it, it just becomes a part of, of who you are. So, um, yeah, that, that's a big part of it. You know, you just can't, you know, at the, the first sign of trouble, you can't just call a timeout and switch to something entirely different. You got to have faith in your preparation and faith in your team that, that, that they're going to do um, what you're asking them to do.
1: I like that use of the word faith for sure. Uh, I like that. Yeah, that just understand what you are going to have to give up, but then also understand the the rewards and the things that you're working to, uh, which make your defense successful. Great. So coach, to wrap up, there's a couple of questions that I ask every guest. So we're going to go ahead and start with the first one here, which is thinking back in your coaching career, what is a moment from your coaching career that you think others listening would be able to learn from?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I, I touched on this early um, earlier in our conversation, but, you know, I, I just think a lot of coaches don't, don't settle for, for doing things the way that they've always been done. Um, like challenge yourself every day. Like, why am I doing this drill? What purpose does it serve? Um, and I think you'll start, if, if you ask that question to yourself routinely, you'll start to see that at least a lot of coaches do a lot of things that really have no impact on winning and losing basketball games. Um, and, and so, you know, the whole small sided games conversation we had earlier kind of lends itself to that. It's like, just work on the things that will actually translate to us winning games. Um, now that's not to say, cause I used to be this guy, I bought all the DVDs. I went all, I went to every clinic I could go to, you know, I listened to Izzo and Gino oriyama and I listened to all these guys and they're all obviously great coaches and they, and, you, and I definitely tell people all the time, like, Steal all you can. You can take from me. You can take from whoever. Take, steal, and use it. But understand that, like, usually you're, the drill that you're stealing is not not the solution to your problem. Um, so just understanding, like, you can steal from everybody, but don't use everything you see, and and try to try to cater things to what your team needs. And I think that's a that sound that may sound. There might be some coaches that listen to this and be like, "Well, yeah, that's what we all do." But I think you know. I don't know that tons of coaches really do that. I think they do three man weave and they do traditional drills that um, you know, they've always done. And they think that, you know, because they played on a really good team 20 years ago, that that's what's going to translate to them having a really good team. And and the fact of the matter is it doesn't. And so I, I would just, you know, my best advice I can give anybody is just, just challenge yourself. You know, why are you doing the things that you're doing? Is there a better way to do it? And, and, Put a plan in place for you to do things better, and then stick to it, and, and constantly, you know, seek out opportunities to get better and to grow, and and, and to do your research and and um, understand that there's no substitute uh, for just jumping in and trying something. You know, it is a game. You know, I always I, I tell the girls <laughs> that all the time it's not life or it's not life or death. You know, it's it's a game, um, and so have some fun with it, and, and your team will appreciate that too. It's like you know, take risks. You know, don't just run something because your high school coach ran it. You know, go branch out, do things that that um, you're interested in, help yourself grow. Um, so just just overall, just challenge yourself to be a better coach. I think is is the best tip I can give.
1: Well, I, I like I like that part about you know still find resources. You know, go to those clinics, get the DVDs and everything. I remember a coach told me once that you may have to go to you know 50 different you know, clinics, sessions and all these things just to find something that works with your particular team that you have for that year. And then the following year, you might draw upon something from a clinic you went to three years ago. So I I definitely agree that you need to, you know, be taking in a whole bunch of information and try and always to get better. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to apply or should be applying all those things to the particular team that you have. Um, again, as as I've also been told, you know, I can I can run all these drills uh that I see like the Yukon women's team uh do, but I don't have the Yukon women's team. So it may look a little bit different if I try to run it, right?
0: Yeah, you know, and I, I have a funny story about that because one of the first coaching clinics I went to was in Chicago and, and Gino Oriema was there. And um he he asked a couple questions. First thing he asked is, you know, it was just pretty much high school coaches, and he said, How many of you guys um our, our college coaches and you know about eight to ten people raised their hand there and, and he said well how many guys are in high school and then pretty much everybody raised their hand and he said how many guys are in private schools and uh you know I'd say maybe half the coaches raised their hand and he goes well you guys are smart and he goes I'd never go anywhere I couldn't pick my own players and you know so everybody kind of started laughing and then he uh he went on to say you know the reason why he's saying that is because um you have to understand that he's got a different level of talent than what everybody else is. And just because UConn women are doing a drill doesn't mean you can take it and put it in yours and it's what's best for your players. And so that that was his message is like, you know, I can do anything because I have the best women's players in the world. And <clears throat> so that's kind of what his message was to us. And that, that's always stuck with me. You know, I heard that about 10 years ago. and And I think there's a lot of truth to that.
1: Uh, I I like that. No, and and it's 100% true. And if Coach Ariama is saying it, I will certainly not disagree with that myself.
0: (laughs) Right, Uh, I agree.
1: Coach, to wrap up, I give every guest what I call a 60-second soapbox. It's a platform for you to kind of get out your your closing message, kind of your final thought, your final idea. kind of feel bad because I feel like you just really did a nice job on your previous answer, but I want to give you that floor anyway. So if you have any final thought or final message you want the, the listeners to hear, Coach, go ahead and go for it.
0: OK, well, I, the, the one thing I, I don't think I've mentioned that that has just been invaluable to me in the last 10 years of me coaching is it's just finding a, a group of people that you can rely on as mentors. Um, and, and you're always going to have, you know, your local area coaches that you compete against that you seem to, you know, have those uh, those bonds with just because you're, you know, competitors with each other but it's nice to find people who don't have a tie to your program that can look at it objectively. Um, And, and so I've had, you know, different mentors throughout the year, but I've found two different groups that I've been a part of that are just fantastic that I want to give shout outs to. Um, And I found them both on Twitter. The first one's ramp, which it's, it's fairly well known. It's, it's the radius athletics membership program. It's run by, by a guy named uh, Randy Sherman, who's just an absolutely brilliant basketball mind. Um, so it, it's just a mentorship that he put together. He's got a bunch of coaches in there. He had over 100 last time I knew. And they just talk basketball 24, like, literally 24-7. as a big group chat with them all in there. And it's it's really awesome. I mean, it's got, it'll just help you simplify your approach to the game. And it'll help you grow as a coach very, very quickly. Um coach Sherman also he'll do like, he'll schedule out one-on-ones with you every month or more frequently if you want it. And um, he'll just put his eyes on your team and he'll help, or, you know, in a game practice, whatever, and he'll help you kind of uh, figure out what's, uh, you know, get you pointed in the right direction if you're struggling with different things. And I owe him a lot because he really helped me um, cut out all the crap that I was doing. That was absolutely (laughs) unnecessary for basketball. So um ramp is a great thing you can find that them on twitter um coach sherman's twitter handle is at radius athletics um so i would definitely encourage people to, to reach out to him if you have any interest in that um he will absolutely help you be a better coach um the second one i have is another group another coaching group called essential coaching and this is a relatively new one um started by by two guys that are, are good friends of mine kyle cavanaugh and asim rustogi which They're both um, – Asim's actually currently a college coach, an assistant coach, and and Kyle's been a former head coach too. Um, And and their approach to the mentorship program is a little different. It's not so much X and O-based, even though the group does have a lot of X and O experts in it, Uh, but it's a more holistic basketball approach. So talking about, like, you know, building leaders and the holistic approach to making your team better, like how to deal with parents, how to deal with officials – um, how, to, how to develop leaders within your program, how to run captain's meetings. Just an absolutely incredible group that has um, about 30 coaches in it, I think, at the current point in time. Um, and it's just amazing. And it's absolutely transformed um, my whole program, everything outside of X's and O's. They've just completely shaped our program in a positive way. And, and those two guys are amazing. Um, so I would encourage anybody, if you're interested in those things, to reach out um, to both Coach Sherman, who runs the, the RAMP program at Radius Athletics on Twitter, and then the essential coaching guys are um, you know, Asim Rastogi, which his, his Twitter handle is at R-A-S-T-O-G-I underscore A-S-E-E-M, or you can reach out to Kyle, and his is at Coach K 424 and if you reach out to them on Twitter, they can get you uh, pointed in the right direction. Um, I would encourage people to be in both of those mentor groups, honestly, because it, it would skyrocket your coaching development. And um, we owe that to our, our players, definitely. If we want them to be as, as good as we hope they can, then we, we have to return the favor in, in the coaching profession, too. So um, those
1: are, those are my, my two tidbits here at the end. I love it. I love sharing resources, love getting people connected with others who are passionate about the game and passionate about coaching and just, just giving back in general. So anything to build that community and, and like, like you mentioned, anything that makes us better, which makes us better for the kids that we serve, I'm all about it. So awesome. Thank you so much for for sharing that really appreciate it and appreciate you coach for spending some time talking about one, two, two, talk a little bit about practice, small sided games and some other topics that we got into it was a lot of fun and really informative for me. I'm, I'm sure my listeners out there got a lot out of it too. So uh, Coach Cruz, thank you for spending some time on that. Good luck with your season going forward.
0: Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Definitely
1: love talking with you. Glad to do it anytime. Awesome. And thank thanks to all of you listening. Really appreciate it. This was another edition of the Basketball Teacher Podcast. We'll see you guys next time.
0: Thank you for listening to another edition of the Basketball Teacher Podcast. Make sure to connect with us on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, or reach us directly through email at basketballteacherpodcast at gmail.com. Take care, be safe, and we'll see you next time.